as you open up to John chapter 7, it's on page 829 in the Pew Bible. Um, I just want to share with you, some of you know, I grew up in Grand Marais, Minnesota. Well, I moved up there when I was in sixth grade, and I loved living in the northern woods of Minnesota. As a, as a junior high and a high schooler, it allowed me endless opportunities to just explore. I love the woods. I love being outdoors. And so I would just go explore and explore and explore. And this was in the days before a smartphone, so I didn't have a GPS in my pocket. I couldn't contact people if I got lost, right? And I would go out miles into the woods on my own. And one of the best survival tips that I was ever given is, if you ever get lost, find water. If you find water, you will find life. Either you'll find like, like uh, wildlife that you could eat, right, if I'm going to get stranded out there, or you will at least eventually you will find like inhabited life. Water will lead you. Find a stream and it will lead you eventually back to Grand Marais or down to Lake Superior. And you will find your way. You will find people. Wherever water exists, generally people exist. Now, that's on earth. I don't know about like extraterrestrial, right? Like who knows? I'm not going to speak to that. I'm not, uh, I'm not about trying to find water on other planets and then life on other planets. That's for smarter minds and people who enjoy weird things more than I do. I just enjoy trees and lakes and rivers and streams. The reality is that if you find water, you find life. Water covers 70% of the surface of our earth, and it makes up almost 70% of our bodies. Without it, our bodies shrivel up and die, and earth would burn to a crisp. Water serves as a beautiful, powerful, and necessary part of life, but it also makes for a great metaphor for spiritual life. And it's precisely this metaphor that Jesus uses in John chapter 7 to draw us into his invitation to new life. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read a portion of our text today. John chapter 7, look at verse 37 through 39 with me. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Lord Jesus, would you quench our thirst this morning? And would streams of living water flow out of our hearts, our souls, our inner man, our inner woman. For our good, for the good of those that we do life with, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, in order to preach this metaphor in its full effect, right, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, and as the scriptures have said, out of their heart will flow streams of living water. It's a beautiful metaphor about the spiritual life, the eternal life, much like what you saw in John chapter 6. Jesus uses bread as a metaphor for eternal life, eternal satisfaction. Here he's using water as a metaphor for eternal life, eternal satisfaction. And, and in order to understand this metaphor in its full effect, we need to do some work in John chapter 7. So come with me all the way back to verse 1, John 7, verse 1, and we're going to walk through this text seeking to understand Jesus' proclamation. 
Verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and after this, it's a transition from chapter 6. Actually, there's about six months difference here between chapter 6 and chapter 7, and so just a reminder, when we read the Gospel of John, John is not chronological. He's not that worried about with like one day, next day, the next day. Sometimes it is sequence in days, but generally he follows themes. So this is about a six-month jump from chapter 6 to chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And there's this growing controversy around Jesus and this growing anger from the religious leaders and the establishment. Remember, Matt, in his podcast, he kind of talks about this word, the Jews, and, and we're to think of it not just as all Jewish people. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jews. This is the, the, the religious leaders and the institution. This is the, the Jewish leaders who want control and power and they're seeking to kill Jesus. And, and it says, we're told in verse 1, that Jesus stays up in the northern region in Galilee rather than coming down to the southern region to, to Judea. It's like he's hiding up in the north woods of Grand Marais rather than coming down to Minneapolis because there's more danger, there's more, there's more potential, especially if you are a controversial figure, right? The more controversial that you are, you, you get around larger groups of people, there's more opinions, and this is what Jesus is facing. And so at this moment, he's up in the region of Galilee. He's up north, kind of hiding out, doing his ministry, sharing the gospel with the backwoods people of Galilee. Verse 2. Now the, now the Jews' feast of booth, booths was at hand. This is an important... Oops, I went too far. This is an important piece of information for us. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This is the seventh of seven yearly annual festivals that the Jews would celebrate, remembering God's deliverance for them out of Egypt. The seventh of seven festivals. It happened in the seventh month, September, October, somewhere in there. Kind of it, their calendar doesn't quite match up with ours, so for us it's kind of September into October. The, their seventh month, celebrating the seven major crops, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, honey, wheat, and barley. And out of the seven festivals, there were three festivals that every Jewish male was required to go to, go to Jerusalem, make a Mecca to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, and this was one of the three. And, and, and many other people, women and children, were encouraged to come along as well. And so in this festival, there's this growing crowd of people in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, or it may be called Tabernacles, or Sukkot in Hebrew, which means Tent Tabernacle. Essentially, it's a, a, it's a seven-day campout in the city of Jerusalem, where, they, where people would travel from all over the region to the city of Jerusalem, and they would literally set up tents and camp out for seven days. That's the, the Sukkot. It's a, it's a three-sided tabernacle, a little tabernacle that on the top it had things like palm branches that would cover it. And they would literally camp in Jerusalem. Even people who had homes in Jerusalem, outside of their homes, they would build this tabernacle, this tent, this booth to spend seven days in. Now some hardcore people would actually sleep in there. It's like those of you with kids, like when your kids want to put up the tent in the backyard, think about that for seven days. And some people, they would do everything. They would sleep in the tent. They would eat in the tent. They would do all of their activities for that week in the tent. Other people, like depending on their resilience, right, and their, their love of camping, they would just go out and eat their meals in the tent and go back into their homes if they lived in Jerusalem. This is the scene in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. It's known as, 
as the most joyful of all of the seven celebrations. Seven days in the seventh month, the seventh festival, celebrating the seven crops, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, honey, wheat, and barley. And they would eat, and they would celebrate, and they would worship. These tents represented the frailty of life. They would remember their wilderness wanderings and how God's presence was with them in the tabernacle, the tent, this mobile temple. And then also as they lived in tents, God was with them. But, but this is frail, right? Tents, they, they don't last forever. They're not as sturdy as homes. And so as they celebrate, as they drink, as they eat, as they worship, they're reminded that life is frail. And all of our dwellings are temporary. But God makes a permanent dwelling with his people, and God is sovereign to sustain us in the midst of the frailty of life. This is what they're celebrating over the Feast of Booths. It's a really important moment in Jewish history and in the Christian faith. Verse 3, so his brothers, Jesus' brothers, all of his half-brothers, said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. So there's this growing following of Jesus and these growing opinions of Jesus. And we're going to see in this next section here that he faces the court of public opinion. Everyone has a different opinion about Jesus. His brothers, they're witnessing firsthand his miracles and his signs, and they, they, they want to platform him. They want to get Jesus in front of the people, in front of the crowds. They're starting to think maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is king. Maybe he's going to deliver us from the oppressive Romans. Jesus, this is a perfect opportunity. The Feast of Booths, of Tabernacles, the Sukkot, when everybody is in Jerusalem, for you to come in and establish your kingdom, set up your authority, and rule this place. So his brothers want him to go there and show off his works. They, they, they want to use Jesus for their agenda of power and freedom. Verse 4, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Come on, Jesus, show off your power. Come with us to Jerusalem. For not even his brothers believed in him. And it, it, that's an interesting line, right? It's like they don't quite believe in him. They, they want to see more signs. They want to get more miraculous things from Jesus. They want to show Jesus off. There's, there's this tension between who they want him to be and who he is. And Jesus said to them, verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And the reality is all of us, traffic in evil. And Jesus is here revealing evil and showing our need for salvation. He says, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. He's not, he's not ready to be seen by the public as the Messiah. His time hasn't yet come. He's, he's working up in Galilee with the people who care less about prestige and prominence and, 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 and their open to his message, and he's not ready for his eventual execution upon the cross yet. Verse 9, after saying this, he re remained in Galilee. So, uh, verse 10, but the brothers had gone up to the feast. So, the brothers go up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but private. Some people get really stuck on this, like, did Jesus lie? Lying's a sin. Jesus basically was just telling his brothers, it's not my time yet. I'm not going to go in a public entourage with you. 
I'm not going to go and fit your agenda and march into Jerusalem with an entourage of people to set up shop as a worldly king. And so his brothers go to the Feast of Booths, as they're supposed to, and then Jesus eventually comes, but he comes privately. He kind of sneaks into Jerusalem, trying to fly under the radar, be undetected. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? This is the Jewish leaders again. Remember, there's this growing speculation, and there's an intrigue and also an anger about who Jesus is and what he's doing. If you remember earlier in John, he healed a man on the Sabbath, and that created a ton of controversy. He did that in Jerusalem, and then he had to leave Jerusalem because the religious leaders were mad at him for breaking their tradition, healing the man on the Sabbath. And so there's all these mixed opinions. The, the, the religious leaders are assuming he's going to be there because every male Jewish boy is supposed to be there. So where is Jesus? We've been waiting to find him. And there was much muttering, verse 12, about him, murmuring or, or speculation about Jesus. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one would speak openly of him. You see all these mixed opinions, and he's a good man. No, he's a, he's a deceiver, and there's all this whispering, all this murmuring, all this muttering about who Jesus might be, and there's, there's some tension in the midst of this celebration because they're wondering, who is this Jesus guy, and is there going to be an uprising? Is there going to be an overthrowing of the religious establishment and the powers that be? Is there going to be a, a, a political tension? Is, is a war going to break out between the Jews and the Romans, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? between the country people and the city people. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And so he does arrive at the Feast of Booths. He's he's willing now to step back into the court of public opinion. And he gets there, and in the middle of the feast, he begins to teach in the temple. And he, this is often, Jesus in John, we see him doing signs and wonders, and we see him making statements, doing teachings. That's primarily his ministry, to do miracles and to teach. And here he comes into the temple in Jerusalem on the Feast of Booths, and he begins to teach. Verse 15, we don't know everything that he taught, but we get little glimpses of it here. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied I love that question. Jesus is there in the temple. He's he's teaching with authority and power and wisdom and skill. And he didn't come up through their prominent schools or their seminaries, but they're like, where did he get all this knowledge? How does he have such authority and insight with his teaching? He's, He's never even studied See, Jesus' authority comes directly from God, not from religious tradition or interpretation or the institution. And we don't know even what he had been teaching up to this point, right? It says in verse 14 that he began to teach. Verse 15, they're marveling at his teaching. Where did he get this wisdom? He didn't get it from the religious institution, from, from traditional interpretation, or from the religious leaders, And he goes on to explain that. He gets it directly from God. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Part of the conflict in John is is Jesus claiming 
to be one with God, claiming to be God, claiming to be sent by God, claiming to have a special authority from God that the religious institution and establishment doesn't have, or they've forfeited because they haven't followed God's law. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent, but, but him, his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Like those who have genuine hearts to know God's will, and, and we see this happening in this smaller group among these crowds of thousands who all have speculation, murmuring, muttering about who Jesus is. There's this small select few who, who are humble and say, I just want to know the will of God. I don't need to uphold the religious institution institution or tradition, the, the, the power, the prestige. I just want to know God. And he says that anyone who desires the will of God will know. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. Jesus is saying, I'm not speaking for my own glory. I'm not speaking to make much of myself. I'm speaking to make much of God. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And that, that's an offense to the religious leaders. Moses has given you the law, and none of you keeps the law. He's exposing their inability to save themselves through religious effort, tradition, and institution. He says, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon more speculation, more murmuring, more muttering about who Jesus is. He's a good man. He's leading people astray. He's demonically possessed. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. So the religious leaders were willing to do work of circumcising a Jewish boy on the Sabbath if it fell on the eighth day. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? It's a reference back to when he healed the paralytic man on the Sabbath. Saying you're willing to fulfill the law. You're, you're willing to, to, to break Sabbath to fulfill the circumcision law, but you're mad at me for breaking Sabbath to make a man's body well who had been paralyzed for 38 years? You hypocrites. Verse 24, he says, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. There, 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 there's a spirit of God's law, not just the letter of the law. Look at the spirit. Consider what's happening. Consider the good that is coming out of Jesus' life. Jesus continues to, to teach, and there's continued debate about who he is. Verse 25, some of the people from Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And he is here speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. And so Jesus is there in Jerusalem speaking, teaching in the temple, and there's these conflict between the Jews, and people are like, well, why is he here if, if they're seeking to kill him? And why aren't, they, why aren't they arresting him now? Why aren't they killing him? This whole thing is unfolding. It's playing out. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? There's even this question, like, Maybe they haven't arrested him and killed him yet because they believe he's the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. Maybe they actually hope he delivers us from the Romans and, and, and writes the religious institution. There's continued confusion, speculation about who Jesus is. 
Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They knew Jesus. They knew that his mom was Mary and his father was Joseph, that he was from the region of Galilee, from Nazareth. There's this belief that, that the Messiah, he'll have a mysterious origin. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. <laughs> I'm one of your brothers. Like, yeah, you know Jesus from Nazareth. But I have not come of my own accord. You've, you've got your assumptions wrong. I'm not just the son of Joseph and Mary. I'm the son of God. I'm, I'm actually not even the son of Joseph. He's my adoptive father. My father is from above. I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There's a little divine intervention there, right, where they're seeking to arrest and kill him, but God is orchestrating this according to his plan, his will, his way, his timing. Sometimes God's timeline is different than our timeline. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. There's belief, there's doubt, there's speculation, there's controversy. So much packed into this, so much going on. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so there's belief, and they're looking for more signs to confirm their belief, and there's just all this swirling controversy. This next little section here, we just see that Jesus evades arrest. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering, murmuring, speculating, again, about these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Remember, they, they want to squelch any potential uprising. They want to maintain power and control. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. This is so funny. These, these, um, these officers come to arrest Jesus, and <laughs> I don't understand how this works. They're there to arrest him. They have a conversation with him. And he's like, I'm not going to be with you that long. And where I'm going, you can't come. He doesn't run away from the arresting officers. He like gives them a riddle. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Jews and to teach the Greeks? And there's Jews dispersed around the regions and cast off. And will he go to them and teach the Gentiles? Maybe that's where he's going. Whatever it is, this riddle that Jesus gives them, it, it, it delays his arrest. He doesn't use force. He doesn't run away. He just says some more confusing things that people are like, I'm not sure if we should arrest him yet. This is weird. Where is he going? I, if he's going to leave, maybe we don't need to arrest him. The threat is going to remove himself. Verse 36, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and find me and will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. They're just confused. Remember, people who are thinking naturally about all of Jesus' words, and Jesus cares about the natural, the physical. But those who are bent on seeing life through natural eyes, through physical eyes, often miss Jesus' supernatural and spiritual teachings. That's where we're at. And we move into verse 37 through 39, which is kind of the crux and the epic point of our text. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, I want you to notice two things here. I say that Jesus preaches at the feast. Earlier, remember, he taught at the feast. 
Teaching and and preaching are kind of two different things. What he does in verse 14 is he teaches. He gives some minutiae. He gives some detail. He gives some depth, some exposition about what's going on. But here in chapter 37, he stands up and he proclaims. This is different. It's more of a declaration of what's true and it's an invitation to life in him where teaching is more of an exposition or an explanation about what's going on. That's the difference here. Jesus did both. He taught and he preached. He did signs and miracles, wonders and healings. He walked with people and then he taught people, gave them more minutiae of the law, deeper teaching. Like Matt's podcast, the part cast where he goes deeper into the things of John. But then here in this scene, this epic important scene in this text, he stands up to preach. Now, I want to spend a couple minutes on this point, and, and I'm not going to come, so if you're looking at your Bible right now, I hope you are, I'm not going to preach through verses 40 through 52. What you're going to see after verses 37 through 39, there's continued speculation, wondering about who Jesus is. It's more of this kind of public discourse around Jesus, the court of public opinion. Who is he? People want to kill him. People are confused. And it always has to do with what Jesus does and what Jesus says. Remember, he had already told us in verses 14 through 24 that what Jesus does and what Jesus says is the direct will of God. God and Jesus aren't different. God's not like some angry, vengeful God up in the sky trying to execute justice. And Jesus is this kind, compassionate, great. No, they're, they're one. Jesus says, all that I say, all that I do is directly from the Father. So when we see Jesus, we see God the Father. And so I just want to note that I'm not going to close out the end of this passage with those verses. You can read it on your own. It's just more of the religious leaders and the crowds speculating about who Jesus is. I want to spend a little bit of time here on verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. This is the the seventh day of the seventh feast in the seventh month when Israel is remembering and celebrating the seven major crops. Seven represents completeness in the scriptures. There's so much significance happening here in this moment. All of these people in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, of booths, of the Sukkot, they're remembering They're celebrating. They're looking forward to deliverance and redemption. Not only that, the the sevens, right? The seventh day, the seventh feast, the seventh month, the seventh crops. Not only that, but on the last day of the festival, the priests priests who were presiding over the seven-day festival, they would go, and they would do this every day, actually. Every day they would go from the temple down to the pool of Shalom and fill up jugs of water and bring it back to the temple through the water gate, and they would pour water out on the altar with priests walking around the altar saying, Hosanna, which means save, save now. But on the seventh day, they would do the same thing that they would do every day of the Feast of Booths, but on the seventh day, they would walk around the altar seven times. So catch this, all the priests of Israel, they they leave the temple, and this is a ceremonial celebration. They leave the temple, they go down to the pool of Shalom, they fill up pitchers of water, they come back to the temple, all along they they are singing and chanting Psalm 120 to 134, which is the Psalms of Ascent. 
this, this huge celebration, people singing, rejoicing. And then on the seventh day, seven times the priests walk around the altar as the presiding priest takes water from the pool of Shalom and he pours it out. Hosanna, Hosanna, come, save us, Lord, save us now. The imagery of what's happening here is the Holy Spirit being poured out upon God's people. Like in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that there was a river in the Garden of Eden that flowed out and nourished the earth. In Exodus chapter 17, remember the Feast of Booths, they're remembering being in wilderness. And what happens when you're in the wilderness? You get thirsty, you're parched, you need water. In Exodus chapter 17, they needed water. And God tells Moses to speak to a rock and water will come from a rock. In Psalm 42.1, it says, As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. And Isaiah 12.3 says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And Isaiah 44.3 says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and the streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Ezekiel 39, 29, I will not hide my face anymore from them. I will pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Water represents spirit being poured out. And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh in Joel chapter 2. Then Jesus comes. This is all Old Testament imagery that the Israelites have in their mind during the Feast of Booths while the priest is pouring out the water. They're longing for the Messiah Hosanna, save us. And now they're longing for the promised spirit of God. And Jesus in John, he teaches, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In John chapter four, if you remember this from weeks ago, he meets with the woman at the well and he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst The water that I will give him is a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then here in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up. The last day of the feast, the great day. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water in abundant life flowing out of the inner man, the inner woman of the person who trusts in God. He says, now now this he said, John gives us a little commentary about the Spirit, the coming Holy Spirit who was promised to be poured out upon God's people, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And then as the story goes, Jesus, in fact, is killed. He's crucified because he's not the type of king that they want And they say, Hosanna, save us now. He said, I'm here to save you. I'm here to give you eternal life. I'm here to give you abundant life in your inner being. I'm not here to play the games of the world and to fight power with power. I'm here to give you a different power, a power of the Holy Spirit, which will be poured out on you, the rivers of living water, so that you can be a blessing to the nations. What's significant, too, during this celebration, the Feast of Booths, not only do they pour out 
water, but they also pour out wine. Water represents the Holy Spirit and his power, his new life. Wine representing the joy of the Lord in salvation and forgiveness. Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast, the great day, and he cries out, he proclaims, he invites us. He says, if anyone is thirsty, are you thirsty this morning? Not, not, not for the things of life that always fade and always leave us needing and wanting more, but for the water of life that will quench us for all of eternity. He says, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of their heart will flow streams of living water. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for being the water of life, the eternal water, the living water. Lord, I pray that we would allow your quenching presence to move through us this morning. And Lord, may we walk this week in eternal life. Nourish us now this morning, Lord Jesus, as we remember the blood which forgives our sins and partake of the body which was given for us, the perfect sacrifice. We love you, Jesus. Amen.